I may never have met you. We don't go way back. Maybe we wouldn't even be friends if we did. But when you wear a mask, you have my respect. Because your mask doesn't protect you. It protects me. I wear my mask to protect you. Mask up, America. Brought to you by the Ad Council. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and friends and friends. Twelve years to the day the Colts left Baltimore, the new NFL team in Charm City took flight. Ravens comes from the famous poem of Edgar Allan Poe, who's buried here in Baltimore. Poe's The Raven was about lost love. That's now the old Baltimore Colts. But the Colt Corral fan clubs won't be lost, just changed, perhaps to Ravens' nests. This is a new era, a new football team, so let's start from the beginning. We're going to change our name, so... The Baltimore Colts were wonderful in their time, but you figure 12 years ago, we got children that grew up, didn't even see a Colt game, are starting a new era in this, in this state, in this city, and it's going to be the Baltimore Ravens. But still, it's hard to let go of what was one of the NFL's great franchises with all those great Hall of Famers. Yet the last winning coach of the old Colts, now the expectant coach of the new Ravens, is excited. I, I know the enthusiasm that the town has. I know the town has a winning tradition, and I know that they, they, they want a winner, and we, we certainly hope to provide them with that. It's not like we're, we're starting from scratch. The only thing that's really starting from scratch is the name and a new city. I look forward to it. I look forward to moving here and getting to know the community better. First and 10, United strike to pass. Old Colt players know about this town. Many still live here, and they're glad that football's back. When we came here, football was the fabric of Baltimore, and I think it will be again, uh, along with the Orioles. It is high. It is good. He makes it. Memorial Stadium was the home to so many great Baltimore Colt championship football teams, but the Ravens will nest here now. That is until this new team with the new name gets its new stadium in a couple of years. But the Baltimore Colts created an NFL tradition in this city, a tradition that will help the fledgling team create a championship on the field where Baltimore Colts once played. The Colts are the world champions. Amici scores. But never more. In Baltimore, home of the Ravens, Bill Horman, Fox News. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, happy new year, everybody. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this, of course, is Good Seats Still Available. How are you? It's the uh, podcast, of course. Uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We are uh, delighted to have you back in this uh, hopefully better new year as uh, we uh, kick uh, 2020 solidly in the butt uh, away uh, into the dustbin of history. Let's hope. Uh, lots, uh, unfortunately, uh, challenging still ahead for for all of us. Uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, though, at least grasp onto uh, a whole dollop, a hefty dollop of hope. Uh, for something uh, better than what uh, we just experienced last year. We hope that uh, you're uh, safe uh, and sound and you continue to be so. And uh, we are uh, teed up for lots more fun and frivolity this year. Uh, and we get underway with uh, a great topic, uh, one that uh, is uh, uh, well-deserving of uh, more investigation. And we are uh, pleased 
uh, to uh, delve back into the story. We've nibbled at it before, but uh, this is kind of the, sort of the centerpiece uh, of this history of the team known as the Baltimore Colts. Uh, and that clip uh, is indicative of what we're in for this week with our guest, Troy Lohman. Uh, he, the uh, documentarian of the great new film called Ghosts of 33rd Street. It is the, uh, I wouldn't call it sort of the comprehensive history of the team, the Baltimore Colts, but it does center around a lot of the uh, uh, the drama, the emotion, um, uh, and frankly, the, uh, the, the hold uh, that this team still has over Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, the Baltimore Colts were, were more than just a football franchise. They were a beloved uh, component of the fabric of the, uh, the city and the region of Baltimore. Uh, and uh, as that clip alluded to, that clip uh, from uh, the recently retired, as of last year, Bill Horman, uh, he was a newscaster for many years in the Toledo, Ohio area. But uh, that clip uh, that uh, started us off this week uh, from April of 1996 is when he was at uh, WTVG. Uh, uh, I believe it's TVG, um, the Channel 5, whatever the Fox affiliate was uh, known as or the Fox owned and operated station, excuse me. WTTG, perhaps, I think that might have been it, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, sort of sets the table. That was when the Baltimore Ravens got their name. That's Art Modell at the beginning announcing the name of the relocated Cleveland Browns, part of the story. We'll get into Troy in a few minutes. Uh, moving to Baltimore and taking on a brand new name, that is the Ravens. And bringing up uh, to the day, years, a number of years after to the day, that in the middle of the night, in March of, I think it was March 25th uh, of, two, of 1984, uh, in the middle of the night, uh, Bob Ursay, the owner of the then Baltimore Colts, leaving on a whole bunch of Mayflower moving trucks uh, under the darkness uh, into uh, moving the entire franchise, all the, the, the pieces and the components and the, the, the equipment and all that kind of stuff. Uh, absconding literally and figuratively to Indianapolis, where in the uh, open and waiting arms of uh, uh, the mayor, uh, the uh, governor, and a brand new stadium in progress, what was then known as the uh, uh, the dome, the RCA dome, uh, no longer with us. Uh, but uh, the um, the politics, uh, the greed, uh, the emotion. Um, uh, all of that is uh, part of that story of the Baltimore Colts. And and that is the focus of this film and our conversation this week that, uh, that Troy has put together. Uh, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy, ghosts, uh, in the term of uh, the ghosts of 33rd Street, in that uh, the Ravens absolutely are either haunted or uh, emboldened by this uh, previous team that had such a hold over the uh, over the city of Baltimore. The Colts were beloved. Uh, so many great memories, a, a couple of NFL championships, a Super Bowl championship, um, uh, a dramatic loss to the Jets in Super Bowl three, uh, some iconic names, uh, you know, everybody from um, Johnny Unitas to, to, to Burt Jones to Art Donovan, if you remember his uh, escapades on the old late night with David Letterman show. I mean, just just it's a whole host of, of characters and uh, and great play and, and just a, and an enormous uh, wellspring of emotion and love uh, still to this day for the Baltimore Colts. Uh, the um, uh, 
just the, the 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 shoddy manner in which they uh, uh, were treated uh, to the uh, the Baltimore faithful. Uh, but frankly, a lot of drama, right? A lot of pushing and pulling. I think a lot of people, not unlike the Brooklyn Dodgers, frankly, never thought that the Colts would ever leave Baltimore under any circumstances. But it took a a a, 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 a you know a, a modern owner, I guess, uh, you know, for good or for bad, in in Rob Ursay, uh to uh, truly show what uh, the NFL and he were all about, and that was uh, the Bucks and the stadium and. Uh, you know, history and lore and uh, and fandom and love and uh, uh, passion uh, be damned. Uh, and that is uh, really the focus of this exquisite film. Again, it's called The Ghosts of 33rd Street, and it is uh, uh, written, directed and produced by our uh, guest this week, Troy Lohman. Uh, we get into all of that uh, in our conversation. You will enjoy it. And uh, if you want to uh, see this film, we'll uh, we'll uh, promote it at the end of uh, our, our conversation. But um you can find out more about it on Facebook. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash ghosts of 33rd Street. And you can also see a, uh, a promo for it as well as uh, watch the uh, the film uh, directly for rental uh, or buying uh, on, uh, I think it's on the Vimeo, Vimeo platform. Uh, but you go to the, uh, the website uh, of Troy's production company. It's called bulletpointproperties.com. That's bullet, B-U-L-L-I-T-T, point, P-O-I-N-T, properties, bulletpointproperties.com slash ghosts of 33rd Street. Um, uh, if you don't remember all that, just go to bulletpointproperties.com and just search. Uh, you'll see the the uh, the feature there of Ghosts of 33rd Street. It's all there. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic, well done. It's only an hour, uh, but it, uh, it cuts right to the chase and uh, it really... Uh, is instructive and um, it uh, it's 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 haunting. Uh, it's it's happy, full of memories. It's also very disdainful uh, for the way things sort of happened, and it's certainly very hopeful. Uh, of course, as the Ravens franchise now, uh, for better or for worse, carries on that legacy of the Colts franchise, uh, inelegant as that history uh, had wound up uh, becoming, but uh, moving forward from it. And all that. So here's our conversation coming up with Troy in just a moment or two, uh, and it's 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 a great one. And uh, if you're a Colts fan, or you remember the old AFL, you remember the uh, AFC battles of, of the Colts, uh, you'll enjoy uh, the conversation uh, immensely. A few promotional things to get out of the way uh, this week, and uh, why not celebrate uh, the legacy of the Baltimore Colts and and frankly Baltimore football history, for that matter, with a couple of our great sponsors this week. How about four seventeen helmets? That's 417helmets, 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your mini helmets uh, purchases. And uh, while there are, there's an Indianapolis Colts uh, helmet there, I, I, you know, I certainly you can uh, uh, check that one out. But uh, two interesting Baltimore uh, offerings that uh, might be helpful in, in the span of this conversation. One, of course, is the Baltimore Stallion CFL mini helmet. Uh, you may remember in our previous conversations uh, around uh, the CFL, the Baltimore Stallions, they were known as the Baltimore CFL Colts for a cup of coffee. And then just the Baltimore CFLs and and uh, a whole bunch of other sort of informal names. But make no mistake, the colors and the stadium, a lot of it was uh, evocative uh, on purpose, frankly, of the old Colts franchise. And in many respects, the uh, the arrival of the CFL brand of football in Baltimore uh, was the impetus to uh, finally, uh, once again, get an NFL franchise, not the expansion version, 
uh, but a relocation version. And uh, why not commemorate that? And how about a truly lost to history uh, version of the Baltimore football legacy? The Baltimore Bombers. Remember them? Probably don't. But they were uh, the team that was proposed uh, by the uh, various ownership uh, folks and uh, and team officials and city officials uh, in uh, the early 90s when uh, the NFL was looking to award uh, expansion franchises, 1993 to be exact. The Baltimore Bombers were the name and the logo and all that stuff. I think that the uh, Glazer family wanted to actually buy the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, were part of that effort. And uh, alas, the NFL decided to go south uh, into both Jacksonville and uh, Charlotte, uh, the Carolina Panthers, for uh, those two expansion franchises, and thus obviously opening the door for Cleveland to move to Baltimore, become the Ravens, all that kind of stuff. We get into that. But the Bombers mini helmet is uh, is cool. The logo is really neat, uh, and there's a great history behind that, too. Those are just the two of the many, many very cool mini helmet offerings that they make a truly great gift. Uh, and they're all there for you to choose from, uh, not just Baltimore, but all kinds of great uh, cities and leagues and teams and all that kind of stuff. Even concepts, uh, even uh, custom made if you want them. 417helmets.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% all of your purchases uh, when you buy early and often. All right, let's uh, let's just stop on the promo stuff there. Plenty of other great uh, sponsors. Just check them out on our website. Why don't you? Uh, but let's get into the conversation finally. Why don't we? Uh, a great one with uh, Troy Lohman as we talk about uh, the Baltimore Colts, uh, their legacy, uh, the Ravens are part of all of that. Uh, and uh, it's uh, truly the ghosts of 33rd Street, uh, Old Memorial Stadium. Let's uh, dial it back into Baltimore, shall we? Here's our conversation with Troy we had just a couple of weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. I'm guessing that you're you're a Baltimore native uh, and, and perhaps that has something to do uh, with the, let's call it fascination with the story of uh, the legendary cult, but uh, I may be a bit presumptuous. No, I, I am a, a Maryland native. I grew up on the on Maryland's eastern shore, and uh, you know, if, in Maryland, you, you have close proximity to, or used to have, the Colts and the Redskins, and now obviously you have the Ravens and whatever you want to call the Redskins now, the football team. So both of them are in very close proximity right down the beltway from each other. So the dynamic of the two teams together like that caused a lot of friction uh, and split the fan base. So I was fascinated by that part of it. You know, being on the Eastern shore, it wasn't as provincial as it was in the rest of Maryland. Northern uh, Maryland was all Colts, all, all Baltimore. And then as you got down into the Southern counties of Maryland, it was more Redskins, and it was like a demarcation line. But, um, you know, the genesis of the documentary, you know, I was in college when the Colts left Baltimore. And, you know, I grew up with the Colts, and so did all my friends. And on a Sunday in the mid-'80s, you know, I was still I was a Redskins fan. Uh, I liked the Colts, too. You know, my favorite player was Burt Jones. But... On a, on a Sunday, I would see that there was a whole base of fans that were basically lost. You know, they weren't going to root for the Redskins, and their team was gone. Um, and, you know, so I thought it was a fascinating story. It's something in the back of my mind when I started making films that I thought would be a story to, to really get, delve into. 
Um, I think there was open wounds in Baltimore. Nobody really closed those wounds, even though the Ravens came in the mid-90s. There was still a lot of bitterness of how the Colts left, you know, how Baltimore didn't get a team for, you know, 12 years. And, you know, like I say, it's just a story of, you know, a city loving a team, losing it, and then having some redemption of getting a team back. Yeah, I, and I'm going to refer to the the, the the Redskins franchise going forward as, as the Washington team, just because we're we're we've had a couple of conversations about that, and obviously we're they're the the evolution of that team, and it's very hard, right? And I grew up a, a Giants fan as a kid, uh, and it's very hard to sort of sort of uh, eliminate sort of all that sort of inculcated sort of culture because that brand name has been there forever. But we we know the reasons why. Let me ask you this though, and I went to college in DC, I went to Georgetown, right, and around the same time, maybe you're talking about. So to me, this was actually a bit more visceral than maybe I would have understood. But um, and you do make reference and, and it's a pretty interesting turning point in in the in the documentary, uh, sort of about sort of this, uh, the Washington team, regardless of its owners, uh, almost methodically and consistently uh, pushing back on any opportunities for Baltimore to either get a franchise or, or have more flexibility uh, getting a franchise after the Colts uh, left. Um, but let me just start with this sort of basic question. Um, this is also, I guess, a question of of television and coverage, right? So you're saying Maryland Eastern Shore. Um, wh- what was your access to NFL games? Were you getting Washington games? Were you getting Baltimore games? Were you getting both of them? Because I don't think a lot of people sort of maybe recognize that the Baltimore-Washington metropolitan area, which you know, has its distinct separations of, of two major cities actually very much overlaps, especially as a media market. And I, I got to think that that might have had something to do with, I don't know, the fandom, the shared fandom or the separation or the, frankly, confusion and or angst, I guess, between these two franchises over the years. Yeah, the area is um, very provincial, um, Maryland. And, you know, being from the Eastern Shore, I, I don't know if you know the you know, geographics of it, but we're isolated across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. When I was uh, growing up in the 70s, you know, we saw the Colts and the Redskins. And if you like the Redskins or you like the Colts, you necessarily didn't really hate the other one. You know, when I went to college, you know, in the early 80s, I went to UMBC in Catonsville, you know, a lot of my friends were up from Towson, Habit of Grace, Dundalk, you know, up north. And then I had some um, fans or, or friends that were from like the southern counties, Laurel, Montgomery County, closer to D.C. DC or, or northern Virginia. And they were they were strictly D.C. fans. And, I, I, you know, looking at it from that angle, you know, I saw the Baltimore fans felt like the stepbrother to, you know, m- maybe the more affluent you know, D.C., Virginia fans. And the D.C. fans really dismissed Baltimore, you know. So it wasn't like there was any kind of brotherly love there. So there was a hatred. I won't say a hatred, but there was a dislike between the two. And this really um, intensified when you look at the history. This has to be strictly economics of the Redskins really keeping down the Baltimore franchise for a long time, you know, through the latter part of the 20th century, even when the Colts first got there, 
as you can see in the documentary, you know, Redskins tried to stop them. They wanted the whole area. You know, it was a very lucrative area, the rabid fan base. They wanted it all. And uh, when the Colts got there, they had their fans. The Redskins had theirs. Um, the Redskins really weren't that great of a franchise through the 50s and 60s where the Colts were the gold standard. And then as, uh, you know, the Colts started to fade out into the 80s and, and left, the Redskins were on the rise. You know, Cook, Jack Kent Cook, the owner of the Redskins, he wanted to capture that. He wanted to capture those Baltimore fans for his own, you know, for financial reasons and, you know, value of the of the franchise. Well, it, this, but, this almost sounds a little bit almost the, the, the diametric opposite of, of what was going on with baseball in the region, right? With Peter Angelos kind of trying to, if you will, prevent D.C. from getting a team and truly trying to constantly get the Orioles as more of uh, penetrate into the D.C. market. I remember vividly in the 80s, right, seeing the uh, what was then sort of a, an avant-garde idea of having a couple of stores, retail stores in downtown D.C. for the Orioles, right? Um, and preventing any potential expansion as D.C. popped up once in a while uh, to replace the long lamented and, and <laughs> departed Senators version point, uh, version 2.0. Tim, you're exactly right. I, I feel that the baseball is the, the inverse. You know, Baltimore, when the Senators left in the early 70s, you know, Angelos and the Orioles, uh, they wanted to capture the Washington fans. And they they fought all the way up to... They're still fighting over the Mazin TV contracts. I think they just settled those. So it's always been a push-pull in all the sports, football, baseball. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the Bullets used to be in Baltimore. They, you know, they moved to D.C. It's been a push-pull in this area with the franchises for all time. I think that probably it will always be that way um, because you've got an interstate feud, um, you know, maybe similar to New York. Uh, or Chicago, for, you know, where you're from. But uh, I think it's probably even worse because it's very two very distinct fan bases. You know, the Baltimore fans are more blue-collar uh, fans, uh, feel like, you know, they're really overlooked, you know, not getting the NFL teams. The Washington fans maybe slightly a little bit more entitled, dismissive because they're more of a national type of um, city. So it was like two... You know, cities, two fan bases that were right on top of each other, to this day still don't like each other. I mean, Baltimore fans still will root against the Washington football team and, you know, vice versa. So, yeah, and, and yeah, I, I, I think, I, they, I think too, geographically, right, it is, it's, you know, regardless, right, this, of these fan bases, right, it's, it's very much a megalopolis, right? And the the overlaps, right? Hell, you've got, you know, the, the, the marketing of the region has, has itself as sort of three airports, right? Baltimore, Washington International, right? Which is a, you know, when you squint hard is actually a pretty convenient alternative to the other two, certainly from a Dulles or if you're, you know, if you're in the DC, you know, proper, right? It's a, it's actually a lot, uh, it, it's an easier uh, proposition than going all the way out to Dallas still in this this day and age. But I, I guess what I it, this though it's interesting. You bring up Masson and, and the whole you know regional sports network thing and how it really still hasn't sort of solved itself in the, in the arguments about it, this. Still seems to be almost uh, somewhat like a media issue in some respects because you know it, well, there are stations in Baltimore, there are stations in D.C. and the, and you know even despite the 
somewhat quaint, I guess, split of the NFL rights between the AFC and the NFC and the different networks and stuff. Uh, it's still this this sort of overlapping, but but it's, I think it's really important. I mean, you're underlining, and I'm going to think it's obvious to people, is that there is sort of a different sort of composition, at least historically, to the of the Baltimore fan, and and, and let's we'll get to the Colts in a second, and that of uh, of whatever this DC team is. Um, it, it's almost not unlike maybe what a Chicago sort of White Sox versus Cubs kind of dynamic is like. I I know it's not an exact replicate, but it's but it's certainly you could argue that this is sort of a battle for the soul of the football fan, if you will, in the region. And it's pretty clear based on what you're sort of describing from the, I guess, at least the historical elements of the fan bases. Yeah, Tim, I like to compare the Baltimore situation to the old 1950s New York, where you had Manhattan with the Yankees, the higher profile team. And then you had Brooklyn, the diehard fans in Brooklyn. It felt like they were maybe the stepbrothers of the area but loved their team just as much, uh, had great teams, and they really, really had a hatred for each other. They had a, a sort of distaste for the, how the other one was portrayed or actually was. So I, I, I think that's an analogy that strikes home. I mean, I think Southside, North, Northside, and Chicago might be similar too. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the way it is here. And it's all in one state. You know, it's all in Maryland. Um, and they're, they're shoved up against each other. It's not like there's really any space. I mean, you got the Beltway, you got Baltimore and DC, I don't know, maybe 30 miles away from each other. But, you know, in between, you know, you have counties that some consider themselves DC suburbs and some consider themselves Baltimore and some consider themselves both. So it's, it's a very, the dynamic has never really been good. You will not find too many fans in this area that are both fans that root for both teams. So it they mark their their territory and that's it. And it basically, you know, in the in the documentary, they basically outline that one. I feel one of the most fascinating parts of the documentary was when the Colts left. The Redskins were in their heyday. You know, they 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 went to three Super Bowls in the 80s. They were a glamour team on TV all the time. And their TV market was shoved down Baltimore's throat. But it was rare that you would get even a 10-year-old kid, which would be easy for them to just switch over to the winners. You know, hey, Riggins and Theismann. And, you know, I want to be, uh, you know, I have a winning team. Now, if you were a 10-year-old Baltimore kid in, say, 1986, you didn't like the Redskins. It was either through your parents or it, you, it, your upbringing or something about it. You just you had a distaste for them. Well, let's um, let's put a push pin in that and, le- and let's go back sort of the origin story, because, I, I, you know, this documentary is, is it's it's terrific. It's 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 concise. Uh, it's long enough, but it's also short enough where it's not, you know, too plodding and and pedantic and, and, and all of it. And it's very emotional for sure. And I'm not even from the area, but. You know that sort of March time frame, that late March uh, 1984, is is uh, in many respects an, an obvious and probably necessary starting point for the telling of the story because it's kind of almost the the guidepost for what happens before and certainly afterwards into today. But why don't we go back sort of to the 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 beginnings of this story? We don't have to sort of get necessarily to the 
cult's origin story. But I guess I, I for those sort of uninitiated, uh, a little bit of a, a I guess a, a beginnings, if you will, of this cult sort of franchise, how it came to Baltimore in the first place, um, and maybe even before that, why you became so in, entranced with this story enough to make a documentary out of this is is that the day job uh troy or or like how, how does the passion project i guess or or willing this story uh into into a film sort of uh occur and you can answer it in any which way you want yeah i mean tim basically i've done three or four documentaries and i usually pick a storyline that i feel is intriguing that i think other people would also find intriguing now, even if you weren't a Baltimore sports fan, or even if you weren't a sports fan at all, the storyline of loving something so much and it being ripped away from you, and you know, basically the redemption of trying to get that back, I just think it's an intriguing storyline. You know, you know, I remember what the Colts meant to this town. I mean, there's certain sports teams that just mean more to the town than others. And the Colts were that way. I mean, the Orioles were really good in the sixties and seventies, but they took second place to the Colts. Everybody on a Monday morning would talk about what the Colts were doing. You stopped everything and watched them on a Sunday. I mean, you know, it was a, a smaller, um, bigger city that, you know, people like Unitas and Maddie and Jim Parker and Artie Donovan would go in and have a beer and you could go talk to them. You know, it was a, it was a home t- It was their guys and they were great. You know, as I said in the documentary from 1958 to say 78, Tim, they were arguably the best team in the NFL, maybe the best team in sports. You know, they have had multiple world championships, rarely lost, rarely had a losing season had iconic players like Unitas and Barry and Lenny Moore. So it was the pride of the city. You know, they hung their hat on that team. And, you know, you can see it in, you know, stories or movies that have been made like Diner. Um, you know, the Levinson movie that, you know, had the, had the guys going to the Colt games. It was intertwined in that storyline. So, and, you know, arguably they played in two of the most important games or the two most important games in NFL history, the 58 world championship. That really was the advent of big time TV for the NFL, it put them on the map. And then when they lost the Super Bowl to Namath and the Jets in 69, it merged the two leagues and, you know, formed the modern NFL, you know, with the AFL and NFL. So the team is entrenched in NFL history and importance. So, and I feel that the name also, the Colts, it was, it was their name here. Like when they did not get that name, uh, it was a big deal. If, in fact, if, you know, if they had sold the name back to the Ravens and today you had the Baltimore Colts, I probably wouldn't even have done this documentary there would have been a blip of about a decade in there, but the Colts had come back and you had the Baltimore Colts back and we, you know, with the horseshoe and everything. So the symbolism, you know, the history, you know, your grand grandfather to the father, to the son, it's memories that everybody had and they were just kind of ripped away and kind of put in a box. 
And, you know, the Ravens have healed the, the town somewhat. But, you know, I, I've, you know, I was young with the Colts. The, the Ravens fans today are pretty rapid, too. Um, but I just I've never seen anything like Colt fans. They, you know, in making this documentary, I've got a, a cult following of people who have watched it. That this has dredged up a lot of emotion for them. And I think it was a little bit cathartic for him to see, you know, some of the interviews I put together with an, you know, an 80 year old Tom Maddie or some of the Colts and, you know, just really explain the inner workings of, you know, why it happened and that it wasn't, it wasn't Baltimore's fault. Well, how did, I mean, Baltimore was relatively, well, it's, I guess not relatively late because the NFL was relatively late itself, I guess, and sort of expanding, you know, beyond, and we've talked about this on a lot of different leagues and stuff, baseball too, for sure. Um, but it, it uh, I think a lot of people forget that the Colts sort of got their start in this uh, fairly, you know, prodigious uh, challenger, at least at the time in the 50s, the AAFC, uh, emerged into the NFL when that effectively that merger I, some would question whether that was a merger per se or not but but then quickly upon being absorbed into the NFL kind of dissolved and then wended its way back by getting a relocated franchise from from Dallas the Texans uh a couple of years later how does why Baltimore in the first place right because it, I I wouldn't call it a well it's a smaller city certainly I guess by comparison to the to the neighboring Philadelphia or even DC in that regard right but it's certainly a, a city of significant size and industry and and uh and distinction right and geography um but what you're describing to me and what I certainly vividly remember growing up too is a team that feels very small market, right? Almost to the point of, I wouldn't say it's as small as Green Bay, but but it feels to me, you know, you mentioned Art Donovan, who was a, a mainstay on the old Letterman show in the early 80s, right? I mean, it, there's sort of a folksiness to this sort of team where it truly felt, in many respects, like family. And and I don't think you get that in a major market, a huge major metropolis. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to sort of pin down sort of the dynamic there about sort of how you know, seemingly familial this team was in the community. I think, Tim, in the early 50s, mid-50s, you had a lot of the old, iconic parks, baseball parks that the football teams played in. They were aging really badly, and it was just pure economics. The fact that they were building brand-new Memorial Stadium that was, you know, that came on the scene in 54 for the Orioles and the Colts, I think it lured them to town which is ironic in that they ended up losing that same team because Memorial stadium was outdated. So Memorial stadium is, there's a string to Memorial stadium all through the documentary. In fact, one of my editors was like, you shouldn't make the documentary about it. And it is very strong, very strong memories of Memorial stadium. Well, um, but I, I feel let's that. Let's talk about that for a second, because obviously Memorial Stadium was, for, for many many years prior to the Colts' arrival, right, was was a ballpark for baseball via the Orioles. No. Yeah, I mean, it, basically, it was a baseball park, but you know, there were you know, to Baltimore's defense, there was a lot of parks like that. You know that, play. You know, like the Oakland Alameda Coliseum was a baseball park and such like that. So. But it was a brand new stadium for fifty for the fifties. Memorial Stadium was state of the art, 
uh, you know, brand new gleaming stadium right in a residential area, right in the heart of the city. Um, and people loved going to it. And, you know, so for the longest time, it was state of the art until it wasn't. And, you know, by the 70s, Tim, it was totally outdated. The bathrooms, the seating, you, and, you know, in the, in the 70s, you started having Riverfront and Three Rivers Stadium, the domed kind of like AstroTurf stadiums being built. So they just, time had passed them by. And when the genesis of them starting to lose the Colts was because they didn't either renovate Memorial Stadium or build a brand new stadium, which there was plans to do. But, you know, this is one reason why Baltimore did kind of drop the ball. They figured that they would not spend, um, you know, public money to finance a private stadium. And the evolution of the finances of the NFL started to change. And the city really didn't change with it until it was too late. Well, but before getting in sort of the, the dynamics of that, because it gets messy quick, um, I guess I'm just really uh, the typical Colts fan, right? I mean, I, you were talking about a, a club that even back to the AFC days, you know, had things like a marching band and, and and I guess cheerleaders, which was not necessarily a common thing. And and it felt like they were truly, you know, a, a, a part of the community. I mean, I, I, I got the sense that most of them chose to live there, certainly after their playing days or maybe even during their playing days. I mean, Johnny Unitas, right, was about as iconic a figure you could have. And, uh, and during most of those uh, those 50s and 60s years, right, where, you know, I, I, I it, it seemed to me like the, the, the Colts were sort of a badge of pride for for Baltimore, maybe even more so than the Orioles, dare I say. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, you know, the um, economics of 50, 60 salaries, NFL salaries, these players didn't make enough to where, you know, to present day, you know, they make millions of dollars and they take off the offseason. There they would have car dealerships or they would work in plants in town or they would own a bar. So they were part of the community. They lived there and the fans loved them not only as players, but as people. And they rooted for him. It was almost like a college atmosphere in Baltimore. You know, the cheer, like you said, they had the cheerleaders, the marching bands, and like Unitas and Maddie, they were their, their you know, that that's their guys. You know, they root for them. Um, and the, the players all, you know, bought into being from, you know, being Baltimore people. Like Maddie was from Ohio, Ohio State. These people came to Baltimore and they adopted the city themselves. And when the Colts left in 84, not one of them, not, I don't think anybody I interviewed or anybody I can remember followed them to Indianapolis. Not one of them. They wouldn't go. They wouldn't go to any kind of like, you know, um, honorary um, parades or anything. They stayed with Baltimore. And when the Ravens came in 96, they all showed up. All the old Colts stayed in town. So they were Baltimore people, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's unusual. You don't see that in a lot of towns. It's very rare. Um, you know, some of the um, bigger cities – that maybe have more going on or is not, aren't, aren't as provincial. 
but you certainly saw it in Baltimore. You still see it today. Yeah, what were these things called the cult corrals? What you had is, Tim, you had these little groups and towns like Habit of Grace or Towson or Perryville. And what they would do is they would have little clubs called Colt Corrals, like the Colt Corral 43 or, you know, Colt Corral 60. And they would have get togethers. They'd watch the games. You know, they'd have meetings. Some They'd have uh, in the off season, they would have some of the players there for events. And it was just like a club, you know, and some of them had their their favorite players and um, it just grew. And even the tradition today, there's a, something called the Ravens Roost where, you know, you have this, these group of people that are maybe in the same area that get together and they, it's, it's a sense of community, a sense of uh, unity and love of the team. So. Some of the cold corrals, you know, they, they lasted well past when the team left. And you know, a lot of the old Colts are getting older and such like that. It's starting to fade out. Another something I wanted to bring up. One of the another reason I really wanted to um do this documentary is that the old Colts are in a box, Tim. And as time goes on, memory fades of how great they were. You know, just how important they were. And I wanted to put down on film why I could still get some of the old Colts, you know, just what they were. So maybe a fan that's 25 or 30 years old could look at this and say, wow, you know, I can see why my grandfather or my father loved them so much. They were awesome. So I think I, I accomplished that. I mean, I got pretty much everybody that I could get. Um, I would have loved to got Unitas. That would have been the best, but obviously that wasn't the case, but you know, getting Tom Maddie, 90 year old Doug Eggers, a lot of the seventies Colts, a lot of the um, media people here, like Scott Garceau and Bruce Cunningham, um, they all were willing to talk about it because it was something that was really important to them. Well, and it's, and it's interesting because it's still very, it's quite visceral for, for not only the older timers, but, uh, but you know, the generations thereafter, I, I guess I, I, I want to, I was going to kind of save this question sort of the end, but I think it's appropriate to ask it sort of now is, and we kind of obsess uh, for whatever reason on the show about, you know, where the history and the memories and the, you know, the officialness, if you will, uh, of, of that stuff uh, resides when a team leaves or goes defunct or comes back or gets relocated or whatever. And in some cases, it's pretty straightforward and obvious. And frankly, in 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 a bunch of cases, if it's a if it's a major league of some sort, you know, they kind of officially sort of put down their foot as to where sort of legacy and and history and 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 all that kind of stuff sort of lives. But I, I guess the question I'll just sort of throw out there is, where in your mind do you sort of see this cult's pre-move history living? Right? I mean, obviously the NFL historian would say, well, of course, it moved with the Colts to Indianapolis, and that's where the legacy and all the, the history, even going back to the probably the old AFC, you know, is probably uh, whitewashed into officialness in terms of, you know, uh, the books and the records and all that kind of stuff. But as you're alluding to, and, and as, it, as it sort of poignantly uh, plays out at the, you know, as, the, as, the, as your film sort of progresses, right, you know, there is sort of that uh, Ravens continuity, if you will, right? I mean, you you talking about 
some of the players, right, and, and a lot of the fans kind of, you know, they never, their hearts never really went to Indianapolis much as they loved that team. It kind of, they almost kind of sort of went dormant, you know, maybe for the CFL for a year or two, and then really kind of transposed themselves into into the Ravens. And, and in many respects, I think a lot of people would argue, and maybe you do too, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that that Colts history of yore almost sort of lives and breathes today in the Ravens, even though there's a discontinuity there officially. What do you think and where do you think that sort of, I guess, original Colts history kind of lives, either officially or maybe unofficially? Well, unfortunately, Tim, I, first of all, I think the Ravens have done uh, – Bashadi's a, a great owner, and he's done a great job in recognizing the old Colts, especially when they first got uh, – when the Ravens first came into town, honoring them. You know, there's a statue of Unitas outside the stadium, uh, and they recognize the old Colts. Unfortunately, it's not a true history. The Baltimore Colts – in 1984, kind of died and were put in a box. They just were. And even some of the old Colts say that. They'll, they'll, you know, to a man, they'll say, yeah, we like the Ravens. They've done a great job. But it's almost like you're a stepkid. And the family loves you, but you're not quite part of the family. And that's the unfortunate part of it. I think that if Ursay had sold the name back to him, which he should have done, I think it's the biggest, tra- tra- you know, it's a, a tragedy that he didn't give them the Colt name. And they had been the Baltimore Colts and continued, sort of like the Browns, you know, the Cleveland Browns. If the Cleveland Browns had not got their Browns name back and they were the Cleveland whatever, the Cleveland Browns would have been put in a box. But because of the, they got the name back, there was a sort of continuity, even there was a gaps in years. Okay, that. Jim Brown and Baker Mayfield are both Browns. So, unfortunately, it's a very odd situation where they're remembered, but they are not completely embraced, or it's not a fluid situation. I'm sorry, it's also disingenuous, right? Because you're mentioning the Brown situation, which is the ultimate irony, right? For those who sort of don't remember 10 years afterwards, right? I mean, the Browns coming to Baltimore, becoming the Ravens, yet that Browns name stayed. I mean, which is the proper way? And I, maybe there isn't an answer because the NFL is the NFL, right? It's it's the, the juggernaut that it is, right? But you would think that if it was – and I know that the, the people involved in both of those moves, right, and the scenarios by which those moves occurred were different, right? Fair enough. But, you know, if the NFL was – trying to make amends for the manhandling and the the misguided, uh, you know, misuse of or, or misappropriation of the Colts name going in Annapolis and not returning it to its proper, if you will, home with the Browns situation right after, you know, an expansion franchise. Why wouldn't perhaps there be a revisit to this Baltimore Colts situation to maybe sort of I don't know, make that square too. Well, I mean, they tried to make that square when the Ravens first came into town. They actually approached not Ursay, but his son, Jim, um, about buying the Colt name off them, which would have been an easy fix. And Indianapolis, you could add a fresh start, call them the Indianapolis Racers or anything, and have a brand new team and a brand new history. 
um, and give it and leave the cult name there. Um, it just meant a lot to the city, the horseshoe, everything about it. I mean, there's still people today, you know, old timers that will see the Colts and, you know, have like shocked, like, Oh, that's the Colts. <laughs> you know, it just meant a lot to them, but you know, the Ursays to, you know, were awful right to the end and wanted some astronomical amount, like 25 million, which was much more than, you know, in today's dollars, something where they knew that the city would, would just wouldn't do it. So that would have been the right thing to do. But, you know, in life, Tim, sometimes people don't do the right thing. You know, leave them the name here, pick a new name, and then things, you know, things are a little bit more justified that way. But unfortunately, that never happened. I think that most of Baltimore would have been happy. You know, there was a, there was a time when the Browns came over, they were going to be called the Baltimore Browns, and Baltimore fans were just like, no. Like, that happened to us. We don't want that to happen to them. You know, we don't want to take their name from them. So, you know, Baltimore fans said, you know, we want a new name. And they, I think they had some kind of contest. And Ravens is, Ravens is a good name with the Edgar Allan Poe angle and everything like that. But being the Baltimore Ravens, it's not a direct line from the Baltimore Colts to the Baltimore Ravens. They're just not. It's a crooked line. And as much as they've done a pretty good job of recognizing them, it's not – it's not their their history. It's Baltimore's history. It's just not the franchise's history. So it was a lot of uh, pain about that, um, the, the cult name. And you, know, you say, what's in a name? In this case, there was a lot to it. So Yeah, when all, it went all the way back to, it wasn't the t- original tie to, and I didn't realize it until the film, but to, to, to Pimlico, right? The old Preakness, right? Yes. Yeah, it was horse country. The Colts, um, you know, that was a natural name to uh, um, to have for a Baltimore team. So, yeah, it was just, uh, and you know, the Orioles obviously is a state bird, so it just made a lot of sense. Now, look, not all teams have kept their, not all cities have kept their names. I mean, the Lakers were in Minnesota, you know, went to L.A. Um, but cer- the jazz, the, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, 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 ridiculousness is the New Orleans Jazz going to Utah, still right. keeping their name for right. since. Right, and um, you know the Dodgers and Giants left New York and went 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 west. So it, it's not like it's not happened to other cities. Just because it happened to other cities doesn't mean it's right. So you know it's something that it, it all came down to money, really, and ego. And um, the Ursays were the worst thing that ever happened to Baltimore as far as ownership. Even having said that, you know, in the 70s, there was a couple times they could have locked the door and kept that team here with just some some renovations to Memorial Stadium. You know, that, you know the, the, the politicians in Baltimore in the 70s were more worried about other things, you know, maybe rightfully so. And there was just a sense from everybody in Baltimore that yeah, they're never going to leave. They can they can squawk that they're going to leave, but they're never going to leave, which is what happened with the Dodgers in Brooklyn. It was a similar situation. They're like, they're the Brooklyn Dodgers. They're not going to leave. And then when you realize they're going to leave, it's too late.
All right, what's this? NordVPN. Fantastic. Uh, friends, you know, uh, the uh, the world of the internet gets uh, crazier and uh, and less secure by the day, it seems. And privacy is a huge issue uh, when you're traveling, uh, perhaps even using Wi-Fi, right? You never quite really feel comfortable in knowing that, you know, your, uh, your internet c- connection is secure, uh, that you're not being tracked, uh, that your data, frankly, is not being uh, accessed and uh, uh, unwittingly uh, pilfered and used for other uh, other purposes that uh, you don't want it to be used for. And that's where virtual pi- private networks, he says, comes in very handy. And the best out there of late uh, is our friends at NordVPN. That's N-O-R-D V-P-N. Let's say you want to, let's say you're traveling and um, you want to access a streaming service when you're uh, in another country. Uh, this is a great uh, way, a virtual private network, to to access those uh, those services without sort of being uh, bumped out because uh, your computer device thinks that uh, you're living in another country. If you use Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi at that, on a regular basis, you know how dicey that proposition can be. It's convenient, sure, but when you're sitting in a, a lobby of a hotel or a Starbucks, you know, uh, y- you think it's secure, but uh, are you really sure? Encrypting your data, very important when you're sending a, a, an important file, let's say a tax form to your accountant. Um, and uh, file sharing, uh, you've got a, a project that uh, you're trying to share with your team. Uh, and, uh, you know, even in a Slack environment or whatever, those things can get uh, easily uh, sidetracked and or uh, intercepted without the benefits of a virtual private network. And again, NordVPN is the best that I found out there. And I can't uh, tell you how not only important a VPN is, but how probably the best that I've seen uh, to date is our friends at NordVPN. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you about all this unless we had a special offer for it. Of course we do. Uh, It's a special holiday deal for every purchase of a two-year plan, and it's relatively uh, well-priced. I, I think you'll find it uh, itself a good deal. You'll get four additional months for free when you go to nordvpn.com slash goodseats. That's Nord, N-O-R-D, V as in Victor, P-N.com, nordvpn.com slash goodseats. And don't forget to use the coupon code goodseats at checkout. And again, you're going to get four additional months for free when you purchase a two-year plan. NordVPN, it's the best that I found out there in the worlds of virtual private networks. Check them out, NordVPN. Thank you for your support of the show. And now back to said show. You know, you're talking about the 70s. I think it's really a crucial time in, in this sort of discussion because um, I think it's important to sort of recognize. And I don't think I don't think a lot of people, certainly this generation, maybe a generation behind, sort of doesn't sort of recognize the uh, yeah, I think the importance of 1972 when the original owner, Carol Rosenblum, who most people I think of, of modern day would sort of say, oh, that's, you know, that's part of the Rams franchise. Well, it's true. But actually in 72 is when. Uh, Rosenblum uh, essentially transformed or trans, uh, whatever the right word is, uh, uh, translated or or swapped out his Colts ownership for the Rams. And that's that's where Ursay comes into play. Maybe you can kind of, to the uninitiated, kind of set the table as to sort of the uh, weird mechanics of sort of how Carol Rosenblum winds up leaving Baltimore and this guy, Robert Ursay, becomes the new majority owner of Baltimore all of a sudden. Yeah, that's a that's a very murky subject. Rosenblum himself is very murky. You know, when I was doing the research, there was a lot to that guy. 
um, you know, through the 60s, he was an ideal owner. You know, he let Shula run the team, and they were an ideal franchise. By the, you know, early 70s, his wife was all, all Hollywood. She wanted it's Warner Brothers. She had deals with them, and she was an L.A. woman. She wanted to go out west. So Rosenblum, basically, uh, at the time, um, Ursay bought the Rams, but he was an East Coast guy, or he was more of a Midwest, East Coast, no-nonsense guy. So at the time, you would think, oh, L.A., you know, that, that franchise is worth more. Actually, the Colts were. They were, you know, gold standard of NFL um, franchises. But Rosenblum also saw, saw warning signs of Baltimore maybe not getting a new stadium and such like that. So he was pretty savvy in that he swapped something that was at the top of its value for somebody who wanted to stay east, and he flipped. You know, he flipped out west, and in came Ursay. Now, Ursay by all standards, was just an abrasive, fairly awful owner. But in today's world, he would just be another owner that wanted a new stadium. You know, back then, there was really, oh, well, you know, you don't need that. You know, you've you got to stay loyal to this. Um, and, you know, he made overtures to the city that Memorial Stadium was starting to fade out, and you had Cincinnati and Pittsburgh starting to have new stadiums and you could just see the storm clouds forming, you know, abrasive owner, not from Baltimore, not getting his way. And, you know, through the mid seventies, Tim, you could put a bandaid on it because they would pack the place with the Burt Jones teams. They're probably the best team that never make a Super Bowl. But as soon as Jones got hurt in the late seventies and the, the, you know, the team started getting bad and the fans started not showing up. It started to get it started to get in the red zone, and uh, you know he ran the team in the ground, and then the, it was a point to where he was just not going to stay, no matter what they did. And by the time they started negotiating with him, you know, right there at the end, it was like a wife that's already decided she's going to leave the husband. It, there was nothing they could do about it. Well, in, so, the, in the mid seventies, right, the team was was uh, renewed in terms of its. I mean, it was it was the shake and bake and 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 the the, the, the sack. I mean, they had all kinds of you know. I, Bertrand, I mean, you had lots of. Uh, it was almost heady times again in terms of on the field performance and stuff. I mean, was Ursay kind of like I? I'm just and I don't know enough about sort of the the, the mechanics and and maybe it's still somewhat convoluted, but I. You know, how does Ursay come to Baltimore per se, right? He's buying LA, they do a deal. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing he wasn't just spinning the wheel and saying, hey, let's go to Baltimore and, and own a football team. It, 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 it almost seems like somewhat happenstance. And, or I, I, I'm just curious as to sort of why and how ham handedly he becomes the lead dog in Baltimore versus other parts of the NFL. And, and, and arguably, did, you know, if, if that situation, which became more evident to people over time, or at least when he showed up and he started to angle around Memorial Stadium's sort of uh, uh, declining uh, nature. Uh, why would he? Why would he sign up for that in the first place? Versus, I don't know, maybe a more fertile market that had a, either a newer stadium or a better, I don't know, better socioeconomic and political dynamic to it than Baltimore might have. I, I think he was a new, like a newish owner that thought that he could get his way. And Baltimore held their held their ground. 
I'm in the and club. I, I'm in the club. Doesn't matter where I'm playing. Yeah, and and here's the thing, you know, you kind of had a reprieve there on both sides in the mid '70s because Memorial Stadium, even though it was starting to be more and more outdated, you had just really good teams and you were packing the place. So Ursay's making money, the city's happy. So there, you know, it took you know '78, '79, '80 when the team started to disintegrate. Um, and the fan base, you know, w- which would happen in any city, um, not showing up as much because there were bad teams. Now the stadium is really outdated. Like, you know, it just really is. Right. You couldn't and get away with it. That point, you couldn't get away with it with, with great performing teams anymore. Now, not only the, 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 the facility was right. sandbagging, but the team was, was he sandbagging the team in terms of, I mean, was he to blame, if you will? I'm sure certain fans would say this, but was he to blame sort of for the decline of the team uh, through parsimoniousness or uh, other things? That Was he sort of fulfilling a prophecy almost to kind of make the team and the situation worse? That is a theory that a lot of people have that I, I subscribe to. I think by the 80-81 season, he had had it with with the Baltimore politicians and the runaround. And yeah, he I think he sabotaged the team. Look, uh, in 83, they were lined up to get John Elway. If Elway comes to town, he turns the Colts back into a great team again. He would have done for the Colts what, the Bron- what he did for the Broncos. And they would have been like business as usual. You know, the Colts would have went probably to a couple of Super Bowls in the 80s. And, you know, eventually I think that um, Baltimore would have renovated the stadium. But when Elway opted out, because the team was in such disarray, that was the end of it. When he didn't come in 83, they went winless in 1983, and they were out of town. He was he was looking at Phoenix. He was looking at Indianapolis. And then, you know, at the time, um, you know, the mayor and everybody else was trying to, you know, make amends with him. He had already made up his mind they were leaving. And, you know, I remember – you know, the fan base, me included, like, they'll never, that they're talking about leaving, but they're never going to leave. It's never going to happen. And then he just pulled the rug out, you know, from under him on a snowy March day. It's still one of the most shocking things that I've seen. It, it was shocking. Like, everybody was shocked the way it happened. Yeah, I'm sorry, but he was angling, though. I, I, I'm I'm guessing, though, too, that he kind of had some inklings of, on uh, some stadium progress even before he became the Colts owner, right? I, I, I didn't realize that I did some research. I know it doesn't sort of fix into the, uh, you only have an hour to tell your story, right? But this Balto Dome thing uh, apparently was sort of on the table in in the early 70s. And I guess, uh, and I, I love to know where Hoffenberger, the owner of the Orioles, was in all of this mix too, because it was his stadium as well, right? I I just get the sense that maybe in some respects, and I don't know this for a fact, that Ursay may have thought that there had been more progress or more going on towards a recognition that Memorial Stadium was not going to be the long-term home solution for them. And perhaps as the years played out, maybe distracted even by how well they did in the mid-70s as a team on the field, that that plus that sort of, I don't know, uh, assumption that the, the Colts were never going to go anywhere and they were always going to be in Baltimore, that I guess it just sort of became obvious to him year after year that this situation was not going to get better. And 
And the whole thing was just unsolvable, I guess, from a stadium perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's like your house is in, it's starting to be in disrepair. You need to fix the roof. And the wife's up there like, you're going to fix it? You're going to fix it? Yeah, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. But you don't. And then, you know, she decides, like, I'm going to hire somebody else to fix it because you just don't fix it. So, yeah, uh, Baltimore, as much as people don't want to hear it, you know, they just sandbagged the guy to the end. And then it was too late by the time they realized that he was courting Phoenix and Indianapolis and such like that. It was too late. Now, out of the genesis uh, of, of, of that disaster, they got the Maryland Stadium Authority and probably kept the Orioles because of that, because they built Camden Yards. And then it also allowed them to build Raven Stadium and, and lure a team back here. So overall, it just shook them, you know, shook them to their senses. And they said, well, you know, we want to keep, stay big. Like if we want to keep teams, we're going to have to build some new stadiums here. They're just not going to stay in stadiums that are in disrepair. So well, yeah, t- take us take us through. T- I'm sorry to to sort of the 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 denouement, I guess, of this, or maybe more the the exclamation point, right? Because all of this comes to a head. It's not like, and I guess I'm sure time. You look backward in time, right? It becomes sort of more clear and obvious, right? But you know, I, this almost feels like in the the very late '70s, early '80s, and and again, you could look further back to '72 and and that 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 dome stadium project that that never really materialized at all back then. It almost feels like this was, if you weren't paying attention, I mean, this was kind of playing out in slow motion over the years that, you know, ultimately something was going to break. And it just so happened that in March 84 is when it actually broke. And in in seemingly nefarious and or, you know, under the cover of night sort of, uh, uh, and I think everybody, of course, was shocked that it happened. Uh, and especially that way. But it, I think you're sort of you're around all of it. Is it saying this wasn't necessarily, if you think about it, all that much of a surprise that ultimately a move or something along something dramatic like this was bound to happen given all of this lead up over, especially the early eighties. Yeah. I, I just think that, um, by nine, the early eighties, it was too late. He had made up his, he really had made up his mind. He was leaving. It would have took a miracle, a miracle, for them to stay at that point. I think he was already courting the team to other places. He had become disenchanted with the Baltimore media who bashed him relentlessly and rightfully so. Um, and the politicians who wouldn't do, you know, just wouldn't get him the new, the, the new stadium. And they just sandbagged it too. I think the, the time they could have saved it, if they had just done some renovations to the thing, made some concessions to him in the mid seventies, when the team was doing well, they could have locked him up for a 10 or 20 year lease and push, kick the can down the road, but they didn't even do that. So inevitably he was going to leave and he was the type of owner that had no loyalty to the city. He wasn't from here. And we, you know, Baltimore paid the price. They paid the price. Who do, who do you think is kind of to blame then as that sort of relationship deteriorated and, and, and progress, quote unquote, wasn't made? I mean, I, I, you can see both sides of it, right? I mean, Baltimore, uh, decaying urban center, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
other priorities, right? Uh, perhaps more fiscally uh, shrewd or s smart to not maybe put stuff into a stadium, which, you know, is, is still a mindset today, right? Where uh, franchises and leagues hold cities literally and virtually hostage now, uh, taxpayer money uh, at the center of it all. Um, some could say from a civic uh, uh, management perspective that, you know, maybe that wasn't the biggest priority and, and you know, maybe it, it, whatever threat it took and, and the inevitable actions that occurred. Um, but then, you know, I, I wonder people uh, from a pragmatic and business perspective, it, it, does Ursay have a point, right? It's like, I, I, you know, I see all these other uh, at the time, right, these sort of multi-purpose stadiums and more modern use. It could do could turn more events around. This is the beginnings of the alternate revenue streams and the luxury box thing. And, and can I move from two o'clock to one o'clock on the East Coast so I could be with all the other NFL? I mean, it's a whole bunch of other things sort of that, um, you know, if I'm a businessman, I own a franchise uh, and I'm not getting, you know, my major, at least at the time, source of revenue and or showcase is not going to be improved anytime soon. What is a business person am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to just take one for the civic pride and team and lose money because it's the right thing to do for the community. So, I, I, you know, larded in all of that is I'm sure the narrative, right, of the, the typical fan and the football, you know, aficionado, right, is that Ursay was just a real jerk and and – and, and, you know, and look, you, th those interviews, right. I, we, you know, he, he, he certainly, he loved to mix it up and he didn't sort of mince any words in the process too. So he, he was not sort of winning a lot of sort of hearts uh, in this process, but, you know, from a business perspective, you could sort of see his point, I guess. I, who's to blame. It seems like there's a little bit to go around maybe him a little bit more so I guess. Right. It's just like everything in life, Tim. I think there's shades of gray to everything. I think part of the blame was him not being transparent and saying, look, I'm going to leave if you don't do this and this. And then part of it is the city of Baltimore, who wasn't really forthright in the way they negotiated with him and figured like, okay, he really can't do anything about it. So they didn't have the foresight to see they were going to lose the team. He wasn't transparent enough and telling them that I'm going to leave if you don't do this. So it's really both, both, both every blame all the way around. And in the end, the people who paid for it were the fans of Baltimore, you know, the fans that didn't want to hear about the economics on either side. They didn't want their team to leave. So unfortunately that happens in a lot of situations, even today. So I would think that you there's blame to go around the board. Why um, and to the uninitiated, why did they? Why was, uh, why was the departure so abrupt, so clandestine, so done? You know, dramatically with those moving vans in the middle of, under the cover of night on that particular evening. I mean, um, I, I'm not sure people sort of recognize sort of the, the the specificity of that date and why it almost his hand was forced for for a reason or two why why was that the exclamation point and the dramatic point that the team left in such a uh, that that kind of manner um uh in in March of 84 well you, you gotta it goes to what kind of person what kind of man Ursay was he he, he really he was heavy-handed and lacked etiquette 
okay, he didn't really care about the fan base or how it looked or anything. He just, I'm leaving. I'm taking all my stuff. Didn't even inform the employees and just walked out the door. So you'd have to go inside that guy's mind. And it was just a wrong, awful way of leaving town. It was just one last insult to the Baltimore fan base, the way he did it. But wasn't, it wasn't, them, wasn't, it, the, wasn't the city, though, going to claim eminent domain on the franchise somehow? I, like that's even possible in the NFL? Well, I mean, they they did a half-hearted attempt to try to keep the team there, but they really didn't have any legal stance to it. It wouldn't have mattered if he left in the middle of the town, or, I mean, in the middle of the night, or he left in a parade. He was leaving. There was nothing they could do about it. It's just the way he left. There's certain ways, certain etiquette, the way you should do it. He just didn't. He just didn't care. So it just speaks a lot to what kind of I what kind of man and what kind of owner I thought he was. He is much hated here in Baltimore. I mean, even to this day, people despise him. And, you know, you'd say you know Baltimore dropped the ball, all this, but there's a lot of bad feelings, especially when you came around and his son did not sell the name back to Baltimore. It was just one last spit in the face that, you know, you kept their name, you took our team in the middle of the night. It, it just won't be forgotten. I, I don't think people really blame Indianapolis uh, or I don't think there's any really hard feelings about the Colts now. Um, I think enough time has passed by that that, is not the case, but the wounds of how they left and why they left, you know, it still resonates, especially with the, you know, the older fans. It's interesting too. I think you hinted at it as well at that. And and now I'm going to put words in your mouth, I guess, but arguably without this event happening in 84, the Orioles, right, got their ballpark in the early 90s, right? And arguably the the beginnings of what became sort of the state-of-the-art retro look feel, right, with Camden Yards. Uh, architecturally, uh, it, was, it was a wonder, right? Uh, and I don't think people sort of recognized in 84, 85. But it, I guess it was the two-by-four to the head, I guess, from a civic perspective that, you know, if we don't do something, we might lose the Orioles too. Um, but also, though, that set them in motion that the idea that, uh, a new facility, not only for baseball, could come about, but perhaps as the lure for for a football team as well, which ultimately resulted in success. But I, I guess the point is, is it fair to sort of draw a line from this tragic event of the Colts bolting to perhaps a renaissance, if you will, uh, to, to Baltimore as a sports town, keeping the Orioles, if you will? I, I don't know if they were dramatically threatening to leave too, but they had to play a Memorial Stadium as well. And frankly... <laughs> three times many dates every year. Absolutely. It is it, out of the ashes was the genesis of the Maryland stadium authority. They had lost the Colts and it woke the city up. Like we're going to lose the Orioles next. So they got the Maryland stadium authority and simultaneously they started to build a new stadium for the Orioles. So they wouldn't lose the Orioles. And now they had to go and um, court the NFL to get another team back. They, had, they don't have a team. So what it did is it woke them up. And the silver lining to all of this is it's, you know, that, that was the genesis of the renaissance of, you know, Baltimore, uh, you know, keeping the Orioles and getting the Ravens. 
what I I hinted at in the documentary, I didn't really put, go into detail with it because I didn't really want to go into the Raven part of it. This is more about the Baltimore Colts. But you know, you know, I interviewed Matt Stover, and one of the things I asked him is like, could this happen again? Could they lose another team? Like, you know, their stadium now is 25, 30 years old almost. And if they don't renovate it or build a new stadium, could they leave? And he says, absolutely, they could. And I, I truly believe that, too. I think it is an evolution that if you don't keep pace with the finances and the demands of the NFL, you know, the way the NFL and is um, evolves with money and stadiums, there's not too many teams out there you couldn't lose, and it's you know it's a a warning, you know, it, that you could they could lose them again. I don't think that will happen. I think they learned their lesson, but it could happen, you know. So it's a cautionary tale. Well, it's interesting too in terms of uh, you know. The, you know the Inner Harbor and and its sort of uh, renaissance of the of the downtown Baltimore uh, experience in the in the eighties. You know it's uh, it, it's uh, almost ironic uh, that at that time you know the Colts wind up leaving, but it in many respects it almost all became sort of a catalyst, frankly, to sort of incorporate sports uh, as part of sort of that that renaissance. And, and uh, you know people look at the Inner Harbor as almost a, as a blueprint, frankly, of how to how to uh, reinvigorate a, uh, a neglected uh, or or a long uh, storied uh, forgotten uh, sort of downtown or core center uh, and stuff. So, but I guess I think it also is part of of civic pride, right? Because Baltimore has always had this sort of you know s- uh, smaller uh, child, I guess, syndrome or brother or sister syndrome versus you know the Washington D.C. thing or even even the Philadelphia area or just along up and down the uh, the East Coast. Although I think Wilmington probably even has more of a complex, but, but, um, but I guess it's, um, it's just, it's interesting because it also then ties into how sports and cities and, and pride and all that kind of stuff come into play, but at what cost, right. To, to what extent, right. When things like education and housing and, uh, uh, job opportunities and all the, I mean, all the, all the ills that, that, that still, you know, uh, uh, shake at society, right. Which, you know, on, on on many different levels, would always seem to rise to the top of importance versus, say, a sports team, right? Or, you know, a, a small gaggle of owners that that are basically running a private enterprise, right? That, you know, kind of shake down communities every ten or twenty years for facilities or tax breaks and that kind of stuff, right? But it, it's complicated, right? Just like you said, there's a lot of shades of gray, and you know, as we've talked about on this this show many, many, many times, going way back into the late 1800s, frankly, with baseball in the beginning, right, where, you know, having a sports team, especially for a city on the come, if you will, or, or perhaps overlooked uh, over time or, or size or scale or, or whatever, um, it actually helps them put them on the map, right? And, and it, it makes, right, it's big, bigger than just, you know, having a team. Look, I, I, I agree with you, Tim. I think that certain sports teams have a the identity of the city it's bigger for them than other cities something like LA that has so much diversity and so much going on a sports team will not you know symbolize them as much as somewhere like Baltimore where somebody some a team like the Ravens is a huge uh, identity 
for the, the for the city. So it's the importance. It's sometimes you can't even put a dollar amount on it. It's you know the pride, um, the value, and what it means to the city itself and in the fan base. Baltimore, they're rabid fan. They're, I, I I still consider Baltimore some of the best fans in the world. Like they're very devoted, very intelligent fans, um, very loyal. So they've taken to the Ravens, similar to what they used to do with the Colts. I still don't think anything would be like how the old Baltimore Colts were, but that's my opinion. Um, but they're really good fans and really loyal. Um, but yeah, you could you lose it? You know, could you have an evolution all the time of what's important to a city, you know, you know, like you were saying, education, uh, different, you know, and, and things are constantly evolving. I feel that the new ultra modern, you know, ultra sleek stadium in LA is a warning shot to every city that that's the new bar that you're ultimately going to have to hit. Um, maybe not today, maybe not five years from now, but ultimately, you're going to have to go that way. And if you can't up the ante, you could lose your team. It's all about the money. Do you think it's gone too far? I mean, I, I'll sort of maybe wrap up. I, I wanted to get into the, the CFL thing and all that stuff. But we had a great conversation with Ron Snyder uh, a couple of months back about the Stallions and the, 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 the Colts and the CFL and that kind of stuff. And arguably, that was a visceral way to sort of get people you know, back into the sort of cult spirit and all that kind of stuff. And and in the midst of that was sort of the hope for, hoping for a, an expansion franchise and ultimately a relocation in, in the Ravens. But uh, we could spend a whole nother hour on, on, on that in particular. But I guess that my question to you on that, maybe a sort of as a maybe a rounding third base here to sort of mix sports and metaphors is uh, I said on a number of occasions, even before, well, certainly before the, the the pandemic sort of started to, to uh, manifest itself in February and March of, of earlier this year or next year when we're recording this, um, that in some respects, you know, sports has become such big business. One wonders how far it has gone and can it go much further in its current state without some kind of, I wouldn't say collapse necessarily, but rethought or, or, or retrenching, so to speak, right? I mean, you look at the palaces, right? Right. And and how many cities can do this and how many cities will kind of give a middle finger and say, look, no, we have our own knitting to tend to versus giving you a billion dollars of tax breaks for a state. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a big soccer fan and 32 teams in Major League Soccer. I mean, you know, I I'm the biggest soccer fan you're going to find. But I, even I, I think that's too many franchises. And I Lord knows how many. The, the 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 leagues that have come and gone in the past are that too. So I and now the NBA is talking about expansion. I I just don't know how much more, especially given the new normals that we're in now. So you say that that bar is 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 rising, no doubt. But is is how many cities and metropolitan areas can pay that toll anymore going forward? I agree. I, I think with what's going on in the world right now, that sports might find itself in a bubble. Like we went, uh, you know, a good part of 2020 without any sports and people realize that they could live without it. So it could, it could be in a bubble and it could, it could burst. Um, having said that, it's a sports crazy, um, country, Tim. And, you know, it's unlikely 
that a football franchise will ever lose its value. It's just something that people love. Now, having said that, I think it's going to evolve into different things. It might be smaller stadiums, more like interactive stuff. Uh, people are, are going more online with everything anyway. So they might have to change the way they do things. Um, but like I say, the, the finances seem like they've been on an upward spiral for quite some time. And I don't see any anything that's going to change that anytime soon. Having said that, the world's a lot different than it has been. And, you know, everything has a bubble. The stock market, uh, you know, events, everything. So, you know, maybe sports will be in a bubble. So, you know, I'll, we'll have to see. But I know this, um, when you lose a team, like Baltimore lost the Colts, it rips out your psyche a little bit. You know, you, you, it's something that you're used to, something that you could always depend on is gone. Something you talked about with your friends, you know, went to events, businesses that depended on it, um, the pride of it. It's something that keeps you wounded. And for the longest time, you know, Baltimore was wounded. And, you know, even though they're healed now by getting the Ravens, you know, that wound, uh, that scar is still there. But in the documentary, Tim, you know, I wanted to do more of the pride and, you know, how great the Colts were so people could remember them because uh, they were, they were, they were an incredible team that really gets lost in, they're basically lost in time. Yeah, you call this movie Ghosts of, of 33rd Street. I, I, I guess that is sort of my last question is, um, you know, th that can sort of uh, be interpreted two ways, right? One is... Uh, you know, there are, it's the history, it's the legacy, it's the, that special uh, uh, time of, of the original Colts franchise or franchises, if you will, if you want to be historically accurate, um, and, and the lineage, if you will, of what exists today, even if it's informal and not sort of officially uh, codified in a history book anywhere, right? Because it's, it's a, 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 you know, a renovation, if you will, of the football uh, legacy and and love between a, a city and its uh, and its franchise, but it also cuts negatively or potentially questionably, right? In that a ghost can also haunt, it, right? Um, yeah, and that's and, yeah, that's funny you said that. There's two reasons why I came up with that title. One is that you know the Colts haunt the memories of Baltimore fans in both good and bad ways. So the ghosts are there still, hanging over everything sports related hanging over the city and then literally uh when the ravens came in they played in memorial stadium for two years i believe and they literally were playing among ghosts you know ghosts of past cult players it when when fans would go in there tim it was like where are the colts you know you know it's just, you it, it was thick you have you ever been somewhere where you go and the nostalgia is so thick that it just takes you over. When you went into Memorial Stadium, because remember, it, you know, it, an NFL team was there that wasn't the Colts. You could almost visualize the old Colts being in there. So that's what, that, those two reasons are what, why I thought that the, the title would be appropriate.
mighty, mighty thanks to Troy for uh, a great conversation and a wonderful film. And again, it's called Ghosts of 33rd Street. Now, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, as you uh, uh, may have heard, uh, Troy's obviously looking for a distribution for uh, the film. Uh, Maryland Public Television could be a place for it. It might be on a streaming service by the time you hear this. But uh, regardless, for now... Uh, you can follow the exploits uh, around this film uh, at two places. One is on the Facebook page. And again, that's facebook.com slash ghosts of 33rd Street. And if you want to actually see the film, uh, write this down and uh, you can, uh, for uh, a, a mere buck 99, rent the film for 24 hours or buy it outright for $4.99 uh, and watch it uh, as you'd like uh, at your leisure. Uh, stream it, do whatever you want with it at uh, this website, bulletpointproperties.com. That's B-U-L-L-I-T-T, point properties, bulletpointproperties.com. And uh, you go there and you just find the little link there. It says Ghosts of 33rd Street. And you'll see it right there. It's only an hour long, uh, but it's fantastic. Uh, it really nails the story and the uh, the uh, emotions and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, as Troy sort of alluded to, it is a... Uh, 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 still a sore but uh, uh, healing uh, issue and uh, storyline uh, in, uh, in the realm of Baltimore and its citizens. Uh, and uh, it's a celebration as much as it is a bittersweet memory uh, of the cult's story and the legacy that they have left and that continues to grow in the uh, uh, in the form of the current Ravens uh, franchise and then some. Uh, I highly encourage you to look at it. And of course, we'll keep you updated if uh, there are other distribution environments uh, from which to uh, to see this, but uh, f- find it. It's great. You're going to love it. It's uh, well worth it. And uh, it is uh, a mere pittance to enjoy a tremendous story. Uh, even if you're not uh, an NFL or a Baltimore fan, you're going to enjoy it just for its uh, sports history-ness uh, for sure. Uh, our thanks, uh, of course, to our great uh, editor-in-chief. Uh, uh, his name is Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Yet another year we've rung in with him. He is... Uh, not run screaming just yet, but uh, we appreciate all his uh, his editorial goodness uh, as we have for a number of years, if you can believe that. And of course, if you want to follow us, you can do that too. We're on uh, uh, the web, of course, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's sort of the uh, the center point of, of all of our doings, all the great episodes and stuff. Uh, if you uh, like what you hear, share it with your friends. Uh, please rate and review it wherever you uh, can do so. That, that helps the algorithm. We appreciate that. And of course, follow us early and often on social media. We're uh, we're on Facebook for as uh, well. We'll see how long. I, I'm I'm getting I'm getting a little tired of the Facebook situation, but you can just search us up. There's a web page devoted to us. But uh, for sure, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Twitter, probably our most active uh, social media platform, and that we're at uh, Good Seats Still there on on Twitter. Uh, send us some email, why don't you? Sure. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, yes, we have a little weekly email newsletter. It gives you a little tip sheet as to what we're going to be talking about uh, the coming week. Uh, just uh, find the link on the website and uh, just uh, give us your email and your name uh, and uh, you're good to go for that as well. All right. My thanks, of course, uh, to all of you for listening. Thanks for sticking with us now entering uh, almost our fourth year coming up. And uh, we uh, thank you kindly. We'll see you next week. More fun and frivolity headed your way. Please, again, stay safe. And uh, until then, ta-ta. Thank you.